0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis, James Feigen, and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of Sox Machine Live. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's leap day. It's February 29th, 2024. This doesn't happen often for us. In the Sox Machine podcast, I don't remember, I don't think we've ever done a Leap Day podcast ever before, Jim. I think this might be our first Leap Day show in 11 seasons podcasting together.
2: And it feels so different.
1: <laughs> sure does. Uh, And of course, we're joined by James Feigen as well. And in this episode, um, we're going to be taking a look at uh the early spring training stats. Because why not? Why not freak out a little bit on who's doing well like Eloy, Eloy's raking right now. Some guys, uh not exactly hitting so well. And uh, raises some questions that if they don't hit better, are they going to make the opening day roster? And Garrett Crochet makes his first start of spring training and impresses, uh, especially striking out Shohei Otani looking uh, in that start. We'll talk about those items in a moment. But first, we're going to be talking about The MLB.com, a fascinating story was released looking at projected defense for this upcoming season. And the reason why it's so fascinating is where the White Sox rank. So as a reminder of just how bad things were last year, the Chicago White Sox, according to fan graphs, were dead last in defense in Major League Baseball in 2023, their defensive rating. Was minus 38 and a half. And according to MLB.com, looking at all the offseason moves that Chris gets has made, a renewed focus on trying to get better defensively. The Chicago White Sox are projected to be plus 17, a 55 and a half improvement on their defensive rating. And that puts them ninth projected in Major League Baseball. So the White Sox, at least on paper, are going to go from the worst in 2023, and now they are projected to have a top 10 defense coming into the 2024 season. So it begs the question, James Feegan, this was Chris Getz's strategy going into the offseason, kind of forced his hand after speaking to, to some free agents and them being very honest that I don't want to pitch for your team because the defense is horrible there. And he focused on trying to get guys in the offseason to help with that defense. So at least on paper, it seems that his strategy for this offseason has more merit than expected. Would would you say the same?
3: Uh, Let me immediately come with two devil's advocate arguments, or perhaps just regular um, commentary arguments. Um, One is that White Sox front office, also made it very clear that the defensive first uh, strategy was a lot cheaper. And that's why <laughs> something they're able to execute with their slash payroll. And so that was kind of like, and it, you know, it's cheap and it might work good too. Was as, might've been the order of the reasoning. And, and another way to look at it was um, I believe that both the, uh, a former podcast co-host of mine uh, back from some era where, before civilization <laughs> uh, pointed out the, the guardians and twins are both rated above the white Sox in the same projection that has everyone excited so that the advantage that they might wreak out of it would be more or less being pursued uh, more effectively by the main uh, guardians that they're gar- literal guardians, but people guarding them from actually competing in the top of the division. Uh, so yes, it seems like their defense is better. That's nice. Um, but I don't, I don't know if it necessarily seems they might be in ninth place, was this big game changer that made me rethink everything about how I assess the franchise for eight years running. But I don't know. Others uh, could defer.
1: <laughs> All right. So, uh, James is still dour about the White Sox mm-hmm. defense and what it will mean for this upcoming season. Uh, Jim, what say you? Does this bring more merit to what Chris Getz was attempting to do this offseason?
2: I think the pro gets argument would be that the White Sox didn't do anything well last year. And so they're looking for like any kind of strength, anything to build around. Like, a lot of like, when you look at the White Sox individually, there are a lot of guys where you say, like, what do they do well? Like, what does Andrew Vaughn do well? He doesn't really do anything well. What does Eloy Jimenez do when he's not getting the ball off the ground? He's not doing anything well. So, like, you could, whether you're assessing it individually, or as a team, this team had really no calling card. So in an attempt to give it one, even if it is the cheapest one, I can you know see why in a year where they're just trying to change their identity, probably wait out Pedro Grafaule a little bit uh, because they might have to hold on to him and there's no use burning a new manager in a team that's going to be overhauled anyway. You have a Dylan Cease maybe to trade. A lot of things uh, still yet to happen. So if you're trying to kill time, uh, this isn't necessarily the worst way to do it. I think my uh, reservation with this is you're defining a team by what it doesn't do, or like what you hope doesn't happen, which is like, they don't make errors. Uh, They don't allow that many runs. They don't allow uh, you know, mistakes to compound, and like that's true. But if they don't do anything else, like if they're not going to score a lot of runs, if they're not going to like strike out a lot of guys, or be overwhelming on the pitching side, you're basically putting a lot of stress on the defense to come through every time. And as we saw, like in the second spring training game, where they made or they had like two two error sequences that just immediately brought back uh, memories of you know so many years before immediately point and say like, well, I guess nothing's changed. And, you know, they're allowed to screw up on one hand. On the other, once they screw up, where do they have to go? If they're not scoring runs, if they're not striking guys out, like they're putting all their eggs in this basket uh, to where once some form of stress causes some crack in the balsa bridge, that it's all going to come tumbling down. So I think that's really the, the flaw in the plan in my estimation is that if somebody gets injured, if they have like uh, you know, they're down two starting pitchers, if Eloy gets hurt again, uh, all of a sudden you're seeing this day in and day out of just like, they better not make any mistake or the whole house of cards is going to come tumbling down. And uh, we've seen that before to where just like, so delicately built to where they can't really afford any kind of either on field mistake or, Set back to the roster.
1: So to follow up, Jim, are you coming on the perspective of like the White Sox being a contender this year in that argument? Because it sounds like, because from my (laughs) perspective, right, Chris gets is trying to change everything, and this is going to require baby steps. And the first step that he's willing to take is let me improve the defense. Yes, we will address the offense. We will definitely need to address the pitching. But man, if free agent pitchers don't want to sign with me, no matter the quality of the starting pitcher, because the reputation of the Chicago White Sox is our defense is horrible and nobody wants to pitch for us, especially when you consider how the ball flies out of the ballpark, especially in the summer. Like, I understand when he shared that information, why he went in that direction, Jim. And he doesn't like this team. And I'm not even totally sold now that he believes that this team is much of a chance contending. So for me, in the mindset of, yeah, this team's not winning the American League Central shows some improvement. And if you could show that you're better defensively, I can live with that. But it sounds like from your perspective, it's maybe a little bit more than that. Like, fingers crossed hopeful that they could surprise in the AL Central No,
2: I I think it's just more along lines of like, you know, they're trying to show competence, which is what they did not show last year. And, you know, if you're not scoring runs and if you're not like acquiring name brand starting pitchers or pitchers who are going to project fantastically and then they trade Dylan Cease, they're just putting so many eggs in the like. Uh, that basket of just, we don't make mistakes. Well, what if you do? What if, like, you're not, you're held to two runs for eight games in a row, and every game is like, you know. E- if, if you have the infield drawn in the third inning because you don't think you're going to score uh, that those sort of pressures you put on the defense to be not just good and sound, but maybe spectacular to make up for an offense, not scoring runs, making up for starting pitching. That's only going four innings. Uh, that's what I think is the problem with building the team defense first. It's a lot like building the team bullpen first, which is what we just saw. <laughs> which is just a very conservative approach of just like, well, if everything goes right, uh, it, it, you know, as long as we have Kendall Graveman, Joe Kelly, and Liam Hendricks, we're not going to blow any lead we have. It's like, well, right. what if you don't get that many leads? Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's just basically you're applying that kind of methodology to the defense, which, you know, to gets his credit is at least on the field the whole time whereas like with kelly and grabe and such they're only in the field from the seventh inning on if there's a lead or if the leverage is appropriate so like there is more merit to this but i still think the pressures are the same to where like if you never have the lead if you're always playing from behind there's only so much that defense is actually going to do to improve the product
1: Okay, those are good points, Jim. And James, Matt poses this question, and this has been something swirling in my head as well. Matt wrote in the comments section, I get wanting to improve the defense, but how does it doing through signing old guys who won't be around lawn improve the long-term outlook of the team? And I guess that is an excellent question, James, because the article in MLB.com cites Max Stassi. Is Max Stassi here for lawn? Paul Deion, is he here for long? Nicky Lopez, is he here for long? Uh, Yoan Nakata is a good third baseman, or he can be. Is he here for long? Uh, the, The answers are maybe or probably not. So how much of what Getz is trying to do and what you heard down in Arizona is part of this new culture change that they're trying to implement that the young guys could take away from the veterans playing really good defense. So hopefully that they work on their craft when they're in the minor league. So when they get into major leagues, they could continue this momentum of being a good defensive ball club.
3: Yeah. I mean, part of it is definitely culture wise or saying like, let's just show that we're going to emphasize this um, and hoping it both rubs off, but also becomes part of their reputation long-term you know, part of it is just trying to produce pitcher success stories, so you can say like, "Hey, Chris Flexen came here and didn't miss a, bat, a bunch of bats and still did all right." You can too, you know. And show like we we we've and we've we've shown our how much we care about defense here in some degree. And you're just trying to produce some reputation. Uh, I would definitely specify like the whole signing pitchers thing like there's a certain type of pitcher for which the defense is a concern it's not like they have the seven year out for out for blake snell and he's like oh i don't know guys i've heard (laughs) things about the outfield like it's it's more like when you're shopping on this lower tier of trying to get nris that you want over other teams where the finances are pretty much the same or you're trying to get the you know reclamation project one year signings having a harder time maybe linking on the guy that's profile really clicks on that because he's like, well, if my pick of very similar offers, I think this is the better environment for me. Uh, I think that's more the shopping where they get affected and annoyed. And certainly like where the bulk of their shopping was this off season, why it's a specific nuisance at this time, but it's not like this. <laughs> I, I don't know if it'd be the reason they didn't get Zach Wheeler necessarily. So, um, okay. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, what well, was the original... Long term. So one of the reasons I agree with the premise long term is that you're still facing kind of a near future where probably your the most exciting hitting prospects in the, the organization that you're viewing to be your next core are fairly bat first. Like, Coastal Montgomery, <laughs> like, even if it all works out, like, he's a six-foot-five shortstop. He's not, like... <laughs> this is not like your typical prowl that you scouted him for defense and a it so it turns out that he, you know, takes pitches like this is the sticking to that project is specifically like trying to jam this bat into where it'll produce the most value. Like Brian Ramos has done a lot of work to be a solid third baseman, but like definitely what we're excited as a plus part of his profile is the offense carrying the defense. I think Edgar Harrow, you know, I think he could definitely become an average defensive catcher, but like, he's not like this super athletic, like, quick mover behind the plate where he's going to like be a goal clover. I don't think it's an offense for his profile. You kind of have that a lot um, in what seems like your impact talent. That's near major league, ready. That's supposed to be turning this around sooner than later. So how the standards that they're applying this year are going to like extend to that. I'm really curious because theoretically it should be like a far stricter grading curve for Montgomery being major league ready defensively than probably would have been on the last administration. And I, uh, let's see if they actually stick to that because I think Colson Montgomery might force them away from this, uh, you know, at least expose some of the limitations of their commitment to this, this mindset.
2: I so, think the one know. area where like there's merit to this, or at least, you know, where I think they really needed to communicate defense is like getting Gavin sheets out of right field, getting Andrew Vaughn out of right field, like all first base like, way back in green. the
3: right field for good. Yeah, maybe. maybe
2: perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, like for now, like having like Dominic Fletcher, Zach Delosch, uh, and Kevin Pillar all there to be like, no, we really don't want that to happen. Are there circumstances to where like it might happen for an inning or two or a half game? Sure. Can't rule it out, but just like, at least they've communicated that like the Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams mode of just like, eh, when it comes to like any kind of defense on, uh, like outside of like up the middle is like, oh, we'll figure it out. And just going nowhere with it, I think is really uh, something worth communicating. And then we'll see like, you know, should uh, plan A, B and C not work for right field, then I guess we could be back at square one. But I I do appreciate that. Uh, um, Yeah, I think more so than any other position on the diamond.
1: Running down the top 10 for MLB.com. Number one are the Cleveland Guardians plus 47. So a pretty big difference between the White Sox and the Guardians. The Chicago Cubs, we know that they're very strong, especially up the middle in the infield. And, of course, having Pico Armstrong being the projected starting center fielder. And if he's not, bringing back Cody Bellinger, still strong up the middle. The Cubs at plus 35. And then you've got the teams that made it to the World Series last year, third and fourth, the Diamondbacks and the Rangers, the Rockies are tied with the Rangers, the Yankees, Blue Jays. The Twins are ahead of the White Sox. But there was this note for MLB.com that there's a wide air bar when it comes to the Minnesota Twins because there's so many ifs coming into this season health-wise for the Minnesota Twins. And there are some serious questions about depth again. And they just got Manuel Margot. Do they not in a trade from the Dodgers? So mm-hmm. it, it raises questions again. How often is Byron Buxton going to play in center field again? Uh, so even though the Twins are ranked ahead of the White Sox at this moment on paper, uh, there's some concern, at least the projection system, that it could be a wide range. If the Twins are healthy, they're going to be strong defensively. If the Twins are not healthy, uh, that's going to be a problem for Minnesota in 2024. But with this entire conversation and watching spring training and White Sox fans looking for some hope in 2024, hoping to see a win improvement, James, is is defense and run prevention alone good enough to see a 10-plus win improvement in 2024?
3: Hmm. 10 like I was I was more confident saying yes they would improve because like 101 losses is already like a above like an extreme result for even like your garden variety awful team um, I don't know I, I I would I'm tempted to say it'll be hard to get I mean they are the central but if we're really talking about like a 10 win improvement I feel like that has to have involved some level of like Mancata, Vaughn, Menez like outproducing last year by some meaningful uh, you know, beyond one standard deviation or so to speak. I I, I think there would have to be a little bit more to their offense or they like just don't have the worst plate approach in baseball and worst plate discipline to to really give themselves more of a chance to be regularly competitive that, you know, seventy-two wins or something would, would require.
1: How about you, Jim? Do you think run prevention alone is enough to win 10 more games?
2: Yeah, it's tough putting a number on it just because it does feel a lot like 2017, where all it takes is one or two trades of the White Sox best players, like Dylan Cisco's, like say Yoan Mancata, if he's part of like a first half to where the White Sox are okay like just an ordinary form of below average but like he looks like a four-win player like maybe he gets dealt and all of a sudden like they're down dylan Cease, or down moncada who knows about Eloy, and, and then like they just have nothing again and looking at the 2017 team first half 38 and 49 second half 29 and 46 so i think that's kind of the split you could look at to where like they end up winning 65 games but that's just because uh they were might've been good enough if they stayed together to win like 74, but because things were clicking so well among players, they didn't want to keep or saw more value in trading away. Uh, they kicked themselves down. So I can see, um, you know, maybe a 10 win improvement, but I don't see much more than that. Just because I think at that point, things have to go very, very right to not, Inspire Chris gets to trade guys who are responsible for right. that big improvement. So that's why I can see them just kind of being self-limiting or self-governing for just how good they can be.
1: Yeah, we did get that comment to back you up on that point, Jim, with White Sox jet. Keep in mind, they wrote in the comment section, we are going to lose some wins after White Sox trade cease. 10 wins better than last year. Might be asking a lot.
3: I think they lost like eight out of nine after the Quintana trade in 2017. With some some major leagues springing in the uh, Goldberg to Clippard uh, bridge at the end of the, of the games in Kansas City. <laughs> oh,
1: recalls. yeah. Of course, Kansas City. Bullpen meltdowns. That's a great place to have them. If they're going to win 10 or more games without the offense approving from post-trade last year, and, and this is a reminder for the podcast listeners and those watching the live stream, After the trade deadline last year, the White Sox offense averaged three and a half runs a game, despite how well Luis Robert was hitting. And on the run allowance side, they were allowing 5.7 runs per game. Like the 2.2 run difference is gigantic in major league baseball. So if they could drop that run allowance to four and a half, but to everyone's point, especially in the comments section, those watching in live stream are making if the offense doesn't approve and they're still sputtering around averaging three and a half runs per game, then I could see where everyone's right that yeah, run prevention alone is not enough for a 10 win improvement because even though they're only allowing four and a half runs per game, they struggle to even score that many. So often it's gotta be a balance in order for the white Sox to see some win improvement from last year. And on that balance, maybe the white Sox. Are getting some good news because Eloy Jimenez is a raking in spring training, and he had another big game today in the split squad action. And Eloy, so far, again, it's very early; it's just eleven at bats. But Eloy seven for eleven to start spring training. No homers yet, but he's got five singles and two doubles. And he's driven in six so far. He hasn't walked, but he's only struck out once. So he's making a lot of contact early on in spring training. And Jim, I when it comes to the White Sox offense and how they're going to improve from that three and a half run average post-trade last year, Mark, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on Eloy because I think after three seasons, we have a pretty good feeling who Andrew Vaughn is as a hitter. I don't know if we could ever count on Yoan Makata posting 2019 numbers again, unless the super bouncy ball comes back. So we keep asking like, who's going to help Luis Robert in this lineup. And the answer always circles back to Eloy, but we don't know what version of Eloy we're going to be watching this year. And is Eloy going to stay on the field? And I, again, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on him that he has to step up big time offensively. If the white Sox have any chance of scoring four runs or more, per game
2: yeah he really is their best chance for instant offense because like even you know factoring in Luis roberts jr with how well he hit last year he's still a little bit of a work in progress in terms of like figuring out like how much power can he naturally access versus selling out more can he like restore some of the average uh hitting that he did like hitting for average, I should say. Uh, and, you know, just his knowledge of the strike zone, tempering those like uh, uh, bursts of aggression that get him into like, you know, a series wide slump. Um, yeah, you know, there, I think there's some moderation that, uh, you know, Robert has to figure out if see if he can do it, but otherwise, like, you know, when you look at Jimenez and everything he's had to learn from so far in his career and his own hot and cold tendencies, like he is like the one guy who you know we've talked about before like could he hit 40 homers like seems like he should be able to just based on his strength his all fields power just more a matter of can he get the ball in the air can he stay healthy and those are probably connected in terms of like is his lower half healthy enough to have the swing he wants and be able to elevate the way he wants to and get the barrel where it needs to be so it's always the same question and like with him it's tough just because like watching him and every time he has to run max effort, you think like, is he going to step on the bag weird? Is this going to set him back for a month uh, based on how he follows through or, or or like hits the brakes after first base. Like you always like wait for him just to come like hobbling back to the bag and looking towards the dugout. And I think that's really just the unpleasantries of watching him is just waiting for that bad step to, uh, just undo all the progress he's made. So that's why I want to temper my enthusiasm, but it seems like, you know, based on natural abilities, based on the, you know, staffers the White Sox have that might be able to have some new ideas for him based on maybe some motivations to change based on the way like, Chris Getz was shopping them around to see like if there are any interesting offers like his spot on the roster and in this franchise is not as secure and safe as it used to be. So like he's got some motivation too to maybe make some changes that maybe he wasn't open to making figuring like, well, as soon as I'm healthy, uh, everything's going to click.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply.
1: Yeah, we did get this comment in the live stream from Mark. Mark wrote to us, I have no faith that Eloy will stay healthy, even when healthy. He has not lifted the ball consistently. For me, he has to prove it over a period of time. And Mark makes some good points, James. And when you were at camp and the position players were showing up, I mean, that's two big questions with Eloy. One, what is he going to do differently to try to stay on the field? And two, what is he going to do to try to generate more lift in his swing? Did you hear anything when you were at camp on some of the adjustments that he or the White Sox coaching staff were planning for him to make for this upcoming season?
3: Uh, I mean, the primarily thing that they talked about was hand placement and his setup and emphasizing contact point, which um, it's hard to kind of pin down how you emphasize contact point so much. Like, it just could be him, an approach or a mindset in a swing that he's trying to catch things out in front and he's trying to think about pull side a bit more than he ever has. He's never been somebody who uh, he was very rigorous uh, in the minors about being up the middle because he was someone who thought... You know the the thinking was that he hit for average so naturally, and he had so much raw strength that he could produce power even with kind of this all fields hitting for average approach that emphasizing him to turn on things or look for balls to pull wasn't really the thing because they didn't they didn't feel like he needed to be subject to the slumps that come with being pull happy if his skill set is so vast that he doesn't need to think that way. But maybe, gearing him more to think about and have his approach more as just like a, a typical power hitter who's trying to maximize their power production. Maybe it's more realistic utilization of what he has at this point when obviously his leg health has not been something that maybe seems conducive to being a four average hitter, or maybe it's just kind of facing the reality of you know what he was last year and what, how his effectiveness would really produce power against this level of pitching. He has been capped by, by not having a, a fly ball oriented approach. So, Right now, it seems like they're maybe under promising a little bit. They're they're emphasizing kind of simple fixes, but I, I think it'd be kind of a bit of a mindset change if he's really kind of leaning into well, the implications of you know trying to get the ball in front would, would lead for him.
1: So, to follow up, James, do you have faith or confidence that we could see a bounce back season from Eloy?
3: Um, faith from like an offensive standpoint, just like this is one of the most like talented and intuitive hitters I've ever seen even though his production has been nowhere near what I would have said, watching him in the minors back in 2018, I don't think it's really diminished the idea that he's like very talented and has this potential for a superlative offensive season. If all the things line up. Now the thing that mainly lines up is health and kind of continuity and his leg base that allows him to drive the ball seemingly as much as he should. There's not like some new level of like uh, optimism here, like not to, dismiss the work of any of the training staff or any all the work that's going into keeping him healthy, but like there's not some big concrete kind of reason they've cited for why this is a better opportunity to keep him healthy, other than they won't play the outfield seemingly based on the roster. But it's it's really seems more like just another spin at the wheel of hopefully this can be the healthy season where nothing crops up the boat in the base pass because it seems like it hasn't just required him to play that much outfield for that stuff to crop up on a uh, still at this point in his career and you know, he really didn't play much outfield the second half of last year. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's a big physical reason to, to leap on to 150 games this year, but it's nice to hear him say it, be dedicated toward it.
1: Yeah. I mean, Jim, Eloy not playing defense obviously is going to hurt his war unless he really rakes. So I think the number for me looking forward to 2024 is that weighted runs creative plus or for those that like baseball reference, more OPS plus, like how is Eloy, Performing against league average, and if he's in like the 120s or higher, well, that's great for the White Sox because he is producing at a high level for them. Just depends on how many guys are on base ahead of him um, when he is batting. But if he's still like between like 95 and 105, yeah, that that's not going to cut it. Like, if if the White Sox are going to score more runs this year, I hate to put all this pressure on Eloy. Like, it's Eloy or bust. But that's what it kind of feels like, because I just don't have I don't have a lot of confidence that we're going to see the Andrews make a big step forward offensively. And the Andrews, of course, being Ben Attendee and Vaughn. So I guess from my perspective, it really does feel like it's on Eloy to help out Luis Robert.
2: I was looking up uh, Nelson Cruz just as like the first D.H. Only like guy who's just there to hit, never expected to wear a glove. And he was consistently above 140. So, I think okay. that's kind of, <laughs> okay. you know, in terms of like at least OPS Plus, I looked at that, you know, which kind of, yeah. you know, I think, you know, matches for power hitter uh, well enough when it comes like, you know, whether it's WRC, you know, WOBA, et cetera. But like along those lines, that's kind of what I'm thinking like he eventually has to get to to be like somebody who's a fixture, like maybe not year in and year out the way Cruz was, because Cruz is like borderline. Hall of Fame talent. I don't think he has, like, a Hall of Fame career, got started too late, but, like, the consistency he showed between, like, you know, ages 30 and 40 are Hall of Fame caliber. Like, you oftentimes that, like, 10-year section can be found in so many uh, Hall of Fame profiles. So I think that's kind of what you have to find. Like, even, like, a Travis Hafner or something like that, short-lived. Like, they were, you know, 140, 150, like, okay. even if they their bodies couldn't quite hold up. So I think, like one of those two cases, if he's never going to be playing outfield in a meaningful way, like he has to start hitting like one of those guys, I think to be, you know, somebody who you build a lineup around versus like somebody who after this contract is up is more or less like a one or two year guy kind of floating around like, you know, JD Martinez, I guess would be another one along the same lines, but like wow. Martinez accessed that 140, 150 OPS plus 40 Homer type power. So I think these standards, as like defense becomes uh, a non-existent part of his profile, like sure, like 120, 130, 450 games would be a good start. But I think like eventually in order to meet what he was expected to do, like he has to like set some kind of like, yeah, I guess plant sort of some sort of flag when it comes to either his durability or his athleticism or just like well-roundedness to be able to offer something besides like, Power, because I think you know maybe that profile is not going to be one that teams are going to clamor for, unless like they just treat them as an upside play for one year at a time.
1: Uh, this comment made me laugh. From Michael, Eloy, Robert, and Makata, each have the goal of playing 150 games in 2024. The probability of me hitting big on the lottery is far greater. <laughs> uh, yes, it's so. a parlay, right? <laughs> have you parlayed them together? Uh, yeah, uh, big odds. Big odds in your favor if they could all three do that. And, uh, I mean, if they perform well, maybe a couple of them will play 150 games, but maybe not all with the White Sox. Uh, let's talk about who is cold. And, <laughs> James, I don't know if Kevin Pillar, if his status in the 26-man roster is in jeopardy because uh, the White Sox could use a f- dependable fourth outfielder especially Luis Robert were to get hurt mid game uh, to have somebody that could quickly come off the bench and play competent defense. But Pilar's one for 11 with seven strikeouts and his bat looks slow in spring training games. If he doesn't hit this spring training, is he in danger of not making the opening day roster?
3: I mean, sure. Like if it's just the whole spring training of whiffing at a, a 60, 70% clip, then yeah, I think that would, that would factor in at some point. I I would have to think if you get up to like 30, 40 play appearances of looking like the equipment manager slipped on the field. then yes, I I think it would (laughs) be a concern. Um, But as far as like a week of play, three games of at bats, I think this is probably the time of year where they're like openly acknowledging that hitters are, I don't know if it's hitters behind pitchers or you can twist it wherever you want. But like, if he's just not timed up yet, I don't think we've reached a meaningful um, sample
1: size. yet. Sample yeah. sounds
3: of time to say like this bat is cooked. Get out, get off, pack your stuff and get off the field. But yes, surely that's possible that, you know, projected out over five weeks. That's a level of tanking cactus league. That would be problematic. I, I assume it's possible. I, I, I don't think I'm on, the watch list yet and I don't think there's it's really just how you have to look at a certain stretch near the end to say like I found my timing especially you know 12 13 years into his career I, uh, yeah. with the with the already the understanding of what he's here to do I mean if Eloy was like over over 11 with seven strikeouts I imagine we'd be descending to a new level of spring training panic <laughs> but the level of identity the, the identities of each players probably give them a certain different kind of grace.
1: Well, that that's why I preface because like Belars here to help with this whole defensive mindset for the White Sox. He, he's not here to be a big producer with the bat. Mike Moustakis is a different point, Jim, and Moustakis is starting slow as well. He's one for eleven. So like to James's point, we'll check back in a couple of weeks. But in my mind, when they signed Mike Moustakis to that minor league contract, I'm thinking, yeah, he's going to make the 26-man roster. Tejrugger yeah. Fall needs allies, J- James.
3: What, what, what are you going to add? Well, just like Moustakis is a funny person to transition to because when they added him, Daryl was asking Gets like, you know, first base, or you think he'll mix in some third? And like Getz literally said, like, let's just see where his bat is. And then we'll go okay. there. <laughs> so right. it's like the polar opposite example of the player. To play big <laughs> guy. Okay. So Kevin
1: Pillar, not so much. You're saying Mike Bissak is very much uh, like this. This is a concern. If he doesn't start hitting.
3: It, he sounds like someone that, you know, may, maybe needs to show a little, little juice uh, offensively <laughs> okay. to, to really stake a claim. I, I think if he goes like, five for 60 for spring with like 30 strikeouts and they're saying like oh we think he give him some thunder off the bench that would be a little bit, a bit more <laughs> typical op- optic wise but we'll see okay okay got it
1: uh so that i i'll skip my uh mike vistakis question to you jim unless you want to chime in on vistakis and pilar
2: well, like Moustakis, like if it just served the purpose of like letting Gavin Sheets know that like his spot isn't assured and he's stealing bases and hitting homers like he's like challenging Luis Robert for a 40-40 run here, uh, then I think, you know, mission accomplished in terms of like, yeah, just not only are you blocked from right field, but you didn't hit well enough to carry a left-handed power bench bat profile back up first baseman either. So, you know, if it served notice and... Sheets is, you know, and I imagine Sheets is self-motivated already, realizing like his, you know, OPS was, you know, awful last year for somebody as large as he is, like that he needed to make improvements. But still, like you know, just competition for these fringe spots where uh, to go back to the top of just like finding guys to try to do one thing well. And Sheets is one guy who did not do anything well. Uh, any competition helps in that regard.
3: If we I got get to- managers of your vote again, I'll have to consider the way Gripal has lit a fire under Gavin Sheets in late February <laughs> here in a way yep. that's immediately turned up results.
1: Uh, Michael in the comment section poses this question to us. Realize it's early, but do you guys have a dark horse to make the opening roster? I mean, on the pitching front, that should be pretty easy because uh, as James is going to, get into here in a moment Uh, it might be who is alive uh at the end of spring training for the white Sox and who makes the opening day roster but on the position player front jim do you have a dark horse do you have someone that we haven't talked about yet that you think could make the opening day roster
2: um not i don't think i think the competition is so wide open that it's like it's hard to feel like there is any real dark horse you know it's more about like guys versus the field if you're betting on them like i I don't know if i would want to say like uh danny mendick is a great opportunity to to make this roster like i can see somebody besides danny mendick making the roster but like would i bet on any individual person besides danny mendick making the roster as like utility infielder i don't think so i don't feel that you know moved about like lenine sosa or Braden shoemaker or anything like that to where uh, i think you know that they're better so To me, on the position player side, like, yeah, just right now, pretty open. Um, Yeah, none of the right fielders are really lighting up to where, like, you know, there's somebody who's making that claim. Like, I don't see Zach Deloach, like, leapfrogging Dominic Fletcher, anybody else to really make that move yet. So I think the order is the order right now. And as we establish with just the likelihood of the front line of talent and then like trying to build a bench around it. Like I think the odds have remained largely the same and that it's all kind of uninspiring.
1: James, do you have a dark horse for the position player
3: side position player side? Darn it. I was like, yeah, I know you're ready for the pitcher. I was entirely focused on the most ridiculous pitcher answer I could conjure. <laughs> uh, I I literally was writing up a piece about Mendick uh, for tomorrow that was like, kind of just looking at the roster, like he's got to feel like this job is his a little bit. um is like it's it's very, it could easily be very cut and dry in the sense that, you know, it's a little bit dependent on their. Willingness to maybe open up 40 man spots. Cause maybe there's a vertical limit to that at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like if you're adding both Mendic and Pilar and then God knows how many relievers. Um, so, I mean, I think like, who's an actual dark horse. <laughs> like at this point is Gavin sheets a dark horse. Um, I think like, sure Deloach could have a big spring training and like he's theoretically has nothing to prove at triple a he's taken and over 600 plate appearances at triple a, but also like that really isn't what I would bet on given the fact that he has options remaining and they're like, their hands are just not tied to try him out early. They can, they can totally stall that out and like wait till there's a more sustained window of playing time to give it to him. So I don't know why they'd make it um, Oscar Colas dark horse. Like I... <laughs>
2: that would be one. I think, <laughs> Based on all the rhetoric around him, <laughs>
3: That would right. be wild. In the sense of like, they want him to operate under the idea. Like if, if anybody on the team is going to like embrace the whole, like we're all competing for spots methodology. It's just the guy who literally wants spring to matter more than they have really said it matters for him. And he's just going to like, you know, the one thing Oscar Collis can definitely do is try too hard, which at spring and, you know, probably clean up as a result of that so I, I could see him having a max effort very productive spring training and some level of like hey we wanted people to earn their spots and he did it so that that's that's the logic the pretzel i've twisted myself in uh for for dark horse where the most major league ready prospect they had last year would now be a dark horse to make the roster this year um in a way i can see it happening i guess
1: all right, so let's transition over to uh, James Feegan's – I'm, I'm not kidding, dead report. No, uh, update here on the pitching front for the White Sox. I, I know I joke. It's it's going to be whoever survives spring training. Uh, but it sounds like we're getting some more news. I mean, Jesse Schultons is undergoing Tommy John surgery. That's the second White Sox pitcher already in spring training that needs Tommy John. What else are you hearing on the injury front on who might not be ready by opening day, James?
3: Uh, I mean, like the two people they've lost, like obviously Tommy John is a huge blow to their depth, uh, like not having Matt Foster being a realistic consideration for the bullpen is a blow to their depth that we probably don't think about because he's been out so long. But they hasn't necessarily lost anybody who was real competition to break camp from Tommy John. But Gnavel was probably the most exciting, like, you know, ceiling pick in the sense that he's been an all-star closer before. But, you know, even before I came back last weekend it was clear that he was going to be behind Thus, if he's behind it probably makes opening day less realistic and not having an nri that you have to put on your opening day roster is probably easier to deal with from a logistical standpoint so coming off the soldier yeah. surgery that they have there's there's no real little no roster based on what scott merkin uh, reported today it doesn't seem like that timetable is moving up anytime sooner or, or looking geared towards uh being opening day ready uh but daryl the Sun Times reported that uh both, Lambert shut down for two weeks with shoulder stuff, and Barlow was shut down and definitely uh, for shoulder stuff. Barlow being a closer for the Rangers, somebody who thought they could tick their velocity back up with some mechanical tweaks, and you know just has some major league experience more than most most of the candidates in there. Really seemed like somebody that maybe you, you could see providing a solid average or above average major league relief season and thus being a trade asset the deadline for some sort of small flip if things click right with them now it sounds like let's see if he pitches this year kind of situation oh wow, great it's like like <laughs> if he if he's being shut down indefinitely in spring then you're one you're in a battle to actually figure out what the timeline is and then what does it look like if it shoulder stuff after that like it, the 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 it quickly accelerates to how how much that he can really be a factor uh, if if shoulder stuff is crappy up the spring. Not that I've heard that he's out for the year or anything like that. I'm just Got logically it. mapping it out. Of like, yeah, it's hard to necessarily pin him down as like counting him for innings at this point. Uh, you have to see how things shake out.
1: All right. So promising. Uh, <laughs> you know, everyone's. Has, it's a great question. Like, who's a dark horse who's going to be making the roster the position player side? Uh, Let me rephrase this.
3: Barlow was ineffective last year to the point where I'm getting like DFA to be in a triple A. So you're looking for him sure. to be sharp coming to the camp. For him to be shut down and definitely with shoulder issues makes it seem like it's going to be this very long bridge. So you're actually seeing like how effective they can get him up to be to where. You know how how long into the season is that, and how does he crack into the mix becomes very hard to project.
1: Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. I'm just I'm making a joke, Jake, because It's like every week now, it's like, hey, all these NRI, all these veteran guys that they sign, maybe they can help bolster the bullpen. It's like, who's going to survive?
3: So I, I was, I was looking day. forward to like a July confrontation with Barlow in my mind, where it's like it's become like I heard you said on a podcast I was dead, like <laughs> sort of. <laughs> It's like, no, I was just talking about indefinite <laughs> cross Yeah. Uh,
1: no, I was going to bring it up. It's like uh, the better question is, who's closing games for this team, Jim? Uh, going into the season, because uh, people are going to be drafting fantasy baseball teams pretty soon. I don't know if you would want the White Sox closer anyways. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> uh, what was the team leading total? Eight last year? Did someone get to 10? Did we? I thought we had that conversation. Nobody got to no, 10? Ken- Kendall Graveman got eight. Kendall Graven got eight. That's right. Graven led the team.
2: Santos had five. Yes. Uh, and based on like Griffo's very uh almost like postmodern concept of the bullpen, uh, and just the idea of like what a closer should be, like, I don't, yeah, if, if he was willing to experiment that much with like Reynaldo Lopez early in the year when there were actual stakes. I can see him just being like, Yeah, I don't really care who the closer is this week. Uh let's just go nuts. Let's let's treat it like a series by series basis or by who's available, and I can really see it spreading out. So yeah, it's kind of wide open and uh like just looking at like you know, Jesse Chavez got hit pretty hard with you know My his guy. first uh yeah, Bounced back nicely, so at least he uh, so that's why like these sample sizes are small enough to where like uh you know, one bad outing necessarily doesn't bury him because like you know, with, as we saw with like Barlow being out, uh, Lambert who would have been a lock otherwise because of his option situation. Like if he's out, then all of a sudden, like, you know, more spots are open or if like, there's a reason to slow play him to maybe hold on to a non-roster guy they like and not have to make a decision on Lambert. Like that kind of incentivizes them to be like, no, oh, let's take it a bit slower. It's a long season. No need to rush Jimmy back into this uh, that uh, they can maybe get, uh, a few weeks of a guy who might not have had a spot otherwise.
1: As in in the comment section that Brian Shaw pitches 140 games this year, maybe he saves 15.
3: <laughs> I also forgot the detail of Brebbia being in the whole walking boot thing. So that,
1: yeah, that that's my, a little of
3: uncertainty to the thing. Yep. Yeah.
1: How's my, uh, how's my guy doing? I need him to get one save opportunity so I could hear wham.
3: Well, he's he's not supposed to be in a game for, I think another two weeks,
1: but he's throwing. So, okay. But the boot, I'm sure that's effective from a uh, folding chair.
3: I mean, like in between <laughs> when he has to walk around.
1: Yeah. <laughs> got, it. Uh, got it. All right. So that brings me to the last topic that we could chime on here. Maybe he'll be the closer for the white Sox, though. Uh, that doesn't really seem to plan. Uh, that's Garrett crochet. He made his first start of spring training against the Los Angeles Dodgers gym. A very tough test, and the highlight is Crochet just freezing Shohei Otani uh, with a fastball right down the pipe for a strikeout. Now, Otani, of course, grabbed all the, the headlines and the highlights because he hit a home run in his third plate appearance of that game. But you run on SoxMachine.com about Crochet's first start in spring, Jim. What did you like seeing Crochet, even though it's a small sample size, of an inning and two-thirds?
2: Well, I like that he went from being like, oh, I don't know if I'll get my old velocity back. I might be a mid-90s guy and I might have to, yeah, I really have to worry about my breaking ball. And then he's throwing like 97, 99, 100 uh, in his first inning back and, you know, confusing the scouting reports. Maybe it's under-promising and over-delivering or adrenaline or maybe just the fresh arm that he talked about having during his Tennessee draft year, like the canceled season. And then, you know, basically having all of that run-up time to uh, get into a real game that counted. And then he had, you know, the peak velocity, maybe it's something similar here, but the fastball like was back, at least for one game. And so like, I don't know what to make of that. Like, is that back? Is that a one game thing? If so, like, I guess I would say like the slider didn't look that great. And I think he's still trying to figure out like what his breaking ball looks like, but when he's throwing a hundred, it takes the stress off all the other stuff. And when we throw a 96, that really highlights the work that he needs to do to make a slider a weapon. So I think we saw the uh, duality of crochet in terms of like what he has been and what he currently is and trying to figure out what he will be from here.
1: What are you looking for James in future appearances from crochet after speaking with him at spring training and to gauge and how much progress that he's making. Cause I, I know we've had this conversation. We're not very high on crochet being a starting pitcher for the white Sox on opening day, but he's hoping to demonstrate that he could take on multiple innings of work. And what does he need to show you in spring training to give you a little bit more confidence that he's ready for that type of workload?
3: I think that his interview should more perfectly foreshadow exactly how he's going to look like. Uh, (laughs) If he could just say like, actually I'm feeling pretty good. Um, it's gonna be ninety-seven, ninety-nine, maybe a hot gun will put a hundred. Uh, but that's where I'm at for sure. I would appreciate that rather than like, well, you know, there's you know, the future is unknowable and like <laughs> projecting specific statistics on how I physically feel is like folly. And how could I possibly say it. All, all all those excuses that athletes always use? I'm done with them. Um, but I think the thing that he would say is that he needs to land secondaries more consistently. Cause I think even just kind of a winter into the order, we saw him having to really power up to get through some of those situations and maybe not, um, you know, getting through things as efficiently as he would need to be a five to six inning option. Uh, I I think he even said that he only really got to throw one change up and that's something he probably, you know, even uh, in a removed world, have to throw 10 times a game and get use out of it a decent amount so um and beyond just you know maybe seeing if the cutter is actually something that he faced a lot of left-handers in that order so he's able to kind of attack the way he did his reliever very often and was overpowering doing it but um i guess i'd want to see him face more right-handers and be able to show that he can land that slider on the inner half of the plate and uh do things to get inside on right-handers that make take the weight a little bit off the velocity even as velocity is there
1: all right so you were doing some quick research when we were asking a dark horse to make it the team uh, out of those guys that are pitching right now in spring training who are some names that you think that white sox fans should pay attention to how they're progressing in these games early because they may have a serious shot of making the opening day roster being part of the white sox bullpen
3: I mean if space is like overpowering, uh and full well Spies is overpowering. If species is in the zone, uh that would be that gives you a guy who has kind of this high level stuff that maybe offers more ceiling than some of their other options. So he'd, he'd be somewhere where if I think like, man, he's really throwing a lot of strikes, like not necessarily just getting out of innings, but like it is locating or, or seems mechanically synced up, that 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 probably He's a, he's kind of a you know high risk guy in terms of like what he's gonna look like in a given day. But if if things if he's in the zone, I think he has like a chance to be kind of like a fun reliever in a way that allows him to make the team out of camp. Um the I was the maximum obscurity and like the weird backstory I was gonna go with was um Jake Cousins. And I had to look that up again because I'm always tempted to call him Scott Cousins, but really that's just the person who took away plate blocking from us. Uh <laughs> so future generations won't uh, be able to appreciate human car crashes and the way that we did growing up. Um, but just because he was someone that uh, like the, the, baseball reason is that he's been someone who talked about that the White Sox recommended like seam shift waked uh, as something he could utilize, which is like one, the first time I've ever heard like seam shift wake said in a White Sox clubhouse before. And it would just be intriguing what that looks like since he's been kind of this big stuff guy that like, it was really something that they thought might help him command the ball and be in the zone uh, mm-hmm. since he's been someone who's struggled with walks and control like his entire career. It'd be fun to feel like it magically unlocks something in this way. We haven't seen guys unlock stuff in the town. But really, my real theory was it's a difficult time for the White Sox. You know, they're trying to convince the fans to have a connection with them to commit tax revenue or hotel taxes to them indefinitely. They're trying to get people back out to the ballpark. What more would re inspire the entire city? than having one of Park Ridge own Jake Cousins on the, on the White Sox. Yeah. Surely the entire suburban population would mob to the stadium <laughs> to see their prodigal son return. So that, that'd be my reason why he, he would be an ex- someone to, someone to watch.
1: So Jake Cousins would be Park Ridge. Nikki Lopez is Naperville. Paul Young's from the area too, isn't Antioch. he? Antioch. Antioch. Uh, and all, all all those Illinois state alums. Yeah. Make your way down. Support your guys. Uh, Seam shift wake. Uh, you want to quickly chime, uh, describe what that is, James? Because this is a pretty popular term, pitching terminology right now when it comes to development, not just to the majors, but like all the way through even to prep pitchers as well. This is something that they're starting to focus on uh, with their coaching.
3: I'm probably not very good at defining it other than like it's affecting the seams and the way to change the movement path from what your eyes would perceive as like the natural way. So it's, 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 I've, it's I'm going to have to watch that freaking video again about explaining it, but it, it's a way to like add a, a different level of like unexpected run and uh, moving on pitches. And that's, you know, atypical from just like seeing the spin or the spin direction and, and guessing where it's going to be. Um, so it, it's not something I've had to talk to players a lot about around these parts. Uh, so I, I didn't learn it as well as probably side of Sharma did. Um, but it'd be cool if it, it became a factor in uh, getting guys in zone and embracing kind of the run on their pitches.
1: I know, I, With Brian Bannister into the fold, we're now going to have to like catch up to all these fancy terms and the forefront of what teams are doing on the pitching front. Uh, Cause the white Sox have always been like trying to play catch up because they you've been more old school, but. I, I, it warms my heart to hear that because I I'm not very familiar with the gym, but I this is something I keep hearing. Like especially when watching college baseball games, Arkansas's pitching coach has been focusing on it. Wake Forest has been focusing on it as well. And reading prep reports, there are some scouts and the prep sites that are mentioning this phrase, uh, even for like 15 and 16 year olds now looking ahead to the MLB draft. So. It'd be kind of fun to do some research and provide that knowledge to White Sox fans that may not be very familiar in this term that's being more popular.
2: It kind of reminds me of um, when Theo Epstein took over the Cubs, and that was around the time where like there were some... I guess the wall between bloggers and the media was starting to fall, but you still had like some old media types who were like, you know, wins above replacement. What's that war? What is it good for? Ha, 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 ha. And then Epstein takes over and then you have like, you know, Bruce Levine and Dave Van Dyke and such asking him like, so wins above replacement. That's pretty important, huh? And like, and I'm just thinking like, he's probably, you know, has 5 billion other metrics that they use internally that uh, nobody knows about yet. And it's just starting to, you know, <laughs> yeah. but it's like, yeah, yeah kind of had to indulge those questions. So I imagine like, yeah, when it's, when it comes to seam shifted wake, it'll be kind of a similar divide between like, you know, you know, people translating on the outside versus what they're actually doing with the information on the inside. I just want to see, like, if we get a Jay Cousins bullpen, will uh Mark join him because then you can have, uh, you know, Cousin cousins kind of like remind me of uh when the White Sox back in the aughts had Jose Valentin and Joe Valentine in the system at the same time and thinking like, oh, just you know, it's just a uh, nice little uh English Spanish translation, or like you know, the uh the Simpsons reference, uh non-union Mexican equivalent, which is <laughs> what I was trying, uh, jumped out to me. But yeah, it's kind of along the same lines, except it would be Cuban in this case.
3: They they both had them like both listed on the same day to throw aside. And so their name is right together, but Chuck Garfine had like some, he got crossed up and saw that Hosemar cousin was on like the list to pitch in the spring opener and definitely went up to Jake cousins and said like, so you're pitching in the opener and confused Jake cousins for like three minutes. (laughs) So what you're anticipating, it, it occurred as you do think.
1: Awesome. <laughs> well, that will do it for this episode of Socks Machine Live. For those that watched a live stream on youtubecom Machine, thank you guys so much for watching the live stream. For those that are listening to the podcast feed, we appreciate you guys as well. If you want to get a chance, you could watch us live on youtubecom Machine or at socksmachine.com, but we always upload the audio recording into our podcast feed in case that you miss it. A couple of announcements. One, we still have our live podcast that we're going to be doing at the Remova Theater on March 27th. this opening day eve, along with our friends from the 108. We're going to have some special guests. We're going to be making that announcement soon of who will be joining us to get ready to go for 2024 regular season. Tickets are just $22. You can buy them at RebovaChicago.com. They'll be $25 in the day of. Again, that is Wednesday, March 27th. Doors open at 7 o'clock, and the show will start at 8 o'clock at night. And, of course, a huge thank you, a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. For those that have signed up recently at Patreon.com slash Machine, we are inching closer to our second milestone that will make it easier for us and affordable for us to send James out on the road covering the Chicago White Sox. If you are not supporting us on Patreon and you want full access to our White Sox content, it's just $5 a month. You go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine. We have additional tiers, so if you want more, you get more from us. We have a $10, $25 tier. We also have our Veterans Committee, which they serve as our board of directors for Sox Machine and they're part of our group chat, and they have direct access to James vegans hooligans, and shenanigans, and all the fun stuff that he loves to not put on the record uh, that he texts to the group chat. So if you're interested in that, you can reach out to us again at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And again, you can subscribe to the Socks Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. And for those that do watch our videos, such as like our 2024 MLB draft coverage, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Socks Machine Live is a production of soxmachine.com. You're over all day Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis and James Feagin, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening.